the revelation, because it's one really long vision. The whole thing is an apocalypse. Yeah, and it works the same way. It begins with John the visionary transported to God's throne room where he sees the risen Jesus as the exalted king of the world. But Jesus is depicted as a bloody lamb. Right, it's a design pattern showing how Jesus is the sacrificial lamb from Israel's Passover and from the Day of Atonement. He gave his life for the sins of the world. And then John sees the ultimate beastly dragon, that spiritual power that energizes violent earthly empires. It's cast out by Jesus, the world's true king. Yeah, now that reminds me. When I read the Revelation, I'm struck by all this cosmic destruction and violence. I mean, it happens over and over and over. Yeah, in the Revelation, there are three seven-part cycles of God's judgment and it's another design pattern that connects together the stories of the flood, the 10 plagues on Egypt, and the exile to Babylon, and even more. These are moments when humans unleash so much violence and death into the world that God hands them over to self-destruction. It's like a reversal of creation in Genesis chapter one, as God allows the world and humans to sink back into darkness and disorder. That's sobering. It is. But remember, in Genesis 1, God overcame darkness and chaos with his light and life. And so too in the Revelation, the death of Jesus and the death of the world as we know it is the pathway into the renewed creation that began with the resurrection of Jesus. And so while the Revelation feels like the end of the world. It's actually about the beginning of the renewed world where heaven and earth are reunited and God's human images rule all creation in the love and power of God. Okay, this is a lot to take in. It is, and there's a lot in these books that is still hard to understand, but the purpose of apocalyptic is really clear, to give us a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances so that every generation of God's people can be challenged, comforted, and given hope for the future. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hope. My name is Ashley Lentz. I'm one of the pastors. We're so glad that you joined us for worship this morning. We kick off a new sermon series in this season of Advent, the weeks leading up to Christmas as we await the arrival of Jesus on Christmas Day. That sermon series is called Revealing the Light. And if you've been following along with us all year, we've been reading through our whole Holy Bible this year, which means it's the end of the year, which means we're at the end of our Bibles, which means we're in Revelation. And I thought that's a really interesting way to kick off the Christmas season by reading Revelation. It fits really well, believe it or not. Revelation is all about hope. It's all about light. And it is this revealing of Jesus, of who God is, and how we play a part in that story. And so I'm really excited to kick off this series for us. Uh, the clip you saw is from thebibleproject.com. That's a really great resource as you continue to read your Bibles to look at videos. They've got podcasts, you know, frequently asked questions, really good resource as you uh, continue to read. 
And they created that video a long time ago, years and years ago, about how to read apocalyptic literature. And it's actually, uh, the piece that we saw is the end of a longer video. Revelation is not the only apocalyptic literature in our Bible. There's more of it. And so the video kind of surveys different pieces of apocalyptic literature ending with Revelation. If you've been following along with the Old Testament readings, we finished Daniel this week. Daniel contains pieces of apocalyptic literature as well. And this is kind of a genre that we're just not really familiar with. And I wonder what comes to mind when you think of apocalypse, like apocalyptic literature. Uh, For me, I did not read Revelation for a very long time. I grew up in church and I always thought like somebody could teach me about Revelation, but I didn't need to read it for myself. It would be scary and dark and destructive and I wouldn't understand it. And so I was afraid of reading Revelation, like, like my theology couldn't handle it almost. I didn't read Revelation until I was in seminary school in a New Testament survey class where we had to read the whole New Testament, which of course includes Revelation. Turns out I really like Revelation, and it turns out my fear, not really warranted. I misunderstood for a long time what was happening in Revelation. It is really confusing. It can be very hard to understand. There are really weird symbols and numbers and things that tend to feel freaky, But as we break it down, it's really not scary. The point of apocalyptic literature is not to scare us. It's actually to help us. It's to reveal things for us. Uh, The Greek translation of the word revelation is apocalypsis. That's where the word apocalyptic comes from. This is why revelation is apocalyptic literature. We think of it as end times, but what this word actually means is to reveal When we think about apocalypse in our world, based on, you know, movies or modern media, apocalypse, I think of like zombies. I think of like the world like cracking open and people falling into it and like a giant beast or something weird. That's what comes to mind. That's the connotation that I get when I hear the word apocalypse. The real meaning of apocalypse is simply this, to reveal, to make visible. Paxton, my almost two-year-old, is in a really fun stage where he plays hide-and-seek, and and he he does this really well. Uh, Just the other day, Tyler and I were kind of like, we were playing with him, and we were watching which way he went to go hide, and so we both saw generally what direction in the house he was in, but we could not find him, and he thinks it's so funny, and finally he starts to giggle, right, because you can't find him, but like we really couldn't find him, and you have that moment where you're like, I just lost my two-year-old in my house. I know he's here. Anyway, sometimes, though, he'll stand in front of you and put his hands in front of his face and go, hiding, hiding. And it's like, buddy, I can see you. But then he'll move his hands and he'll go, peek. He'll put them back and he'll go, peek. And it's the cutest darn thing. I wonder if we think about Revelation as a cute little toddler standing in front of you. Maybe it's Jesus going, peek. That's what Revelation is. It's God revealing himself to us in a really hopeful kind of way. It's not supposed to fill us with fear or make us not want to read it. It's supposed to fill us with hope, and that's how that Bible Project video ends. I like what the narrators say, that the point of apocalyptic literature is to give us a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances. Sit with that for just a minute. The point of apocalyptic literature is to give us a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances so we can be challenged, comforted, and given hope for the future. 
If what comes to mind when you think about apocalypse is fear, that's due to modern media. It's not because of revelation. The point is actually to give us hope for the future. It's to bring us comfort and to challenge us, to bring this heavenly, this greater perspective to what we're currently going through, to our earthly trials, to our earthly circumstances. Revelation is set up really, really well to do that. We simply need to remember it as we keep reading because it does get weird. We are far removed from the context. There are some odd symbols, all of those kind of things. But if we keep in mind that the point of this literature was never to scare us, it's always to inform us, it's always to reveal Jesus to us, always to point us to hope and something greater, we might learn to appreciate Revelation and really see Jesus showing up in it. That is the point. So if you want to open your Bibles with me, a good place to start would be Revelation chapter 1. You heard in our Bible reading today, Revelation 1, it's kind of the prologue to Revelation. John begins writing this vision in a very specific way. It's really beautiful, and it sets up the rest of the book of Revelation for us. So it's important that we understand what's happening right here at the beginning, because it gives us reminders of God's identity and our identity, and will give us a firm foundation on which to read the kind of weird stuff that is to come. Okay, so here's Revelation 1. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John. This is a revelation. This is apocalypsis from, the Greek word from can also be translated of or about. That's actually like footnoted in my Bible. This is a revelation of Jesus or about Jesus from Jesus. It's all of the above. It's from Jesus and of Jesus and about Jesus, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John. So it's already slightly confusing because this is a revelation from or of or about Jesus that he gives to an angel who then gives it to John. And who is John? Well, we're not really sure. This could be the gospel writer, John. It could also just be a great evangel, a great disciple named John, who is spreading the good news of Jesus, who gets this vision. What we are confident of is that this John, whoever he is, he was so great at spreading the good news of Jesus under the Roman Empire that they exiled him for it. Rather than killing him for it, he was exiled to an island in Patmos. Exile is not a very good sentence either, but it's in exile that John receives this vision, which is pretty amazing when you think that John was in exile for what he was preaching and teaching about Jesus. He is on Patmos, gets this vision, gets this revelation, is able to write it down and get it distributed throughout the world so that people know it and that we still hold it in our hands today. That is pretty cool. So this is a revelation from or of Jesus that he gave to an angel that John is now writing down for us. And the way that John begins, like I said, is with identity. He reminds us right at the beginning of this book who God is in a very profound way. This is verse 4. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. We, we just like gloss over phrases like this. It's very significant. It's actually a reference to Exodus chapter 3, where God reveals himself as I am, as Yahweh, as the fulfillment of scripture, as the fulfillment of this creator that the Jewish people had been waiting for. This is John reminding the audience, this is him saying, as we begin this revelation, 
This is about this God, not a small God, not a little G God, not an idol that you might worship. This is about Yahweh. He's going to be revealed to us, the God who is, who always was, and who is to come. This all-encompassing, before all time, will be around after all time, creator of the world, creator of you and me. That's who is being revealed to us in this revelation. And then a couple verses later, more identity. This is verse 6. He says, he calls out our identity. He says, he has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father, All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. He calls out how you and I participate in this story. He calls us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. We have a greater identity, a greater purpose. And this story, this revealing, we're part of it. We participate in the hope, the light, the life, the love that comes from knowing and walking in this story that points us to God. And then a couple verses later, he quotes God. There's a direct quote from God in Revelation chapter 1. This is verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. John only quotes God, a direct quote from God, two times in this entire book of Revelation. One of it, one of those quotes is here in Revelation 1. The other quote is in Revelation 21, and it's actually a literary technique called book ending. John does that on purpose, these direct quotes from God, to encompass everything that comes in between and to say God is the beginning and the end of this. And in fact, he's everything in between. When we talk about Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, when you reference those, it also means you're referencing all the stuff in the middle of that. So not only is God the beginning and the end, he's everything in the middle of it. He also existed before it and after it. He is the Almighty One. This is God proclaiming this through John at the beginning of Revelation. It's setting us up to really appreciate the vision that's coming, the hope that is coming, the light that is going to be revealed. We get to celebrate that light on Christmas pretty cool how Revelation stacks up right to Christmas. For us to jump in and really appreciate this over the next few weeks, we've read Revelation 1 through 5 this week. Uh, It's about to get weird, okay? Revelation 1 through 5 is pretty chill compared to what we're about to get to in Revelation. So what I want to do as we begin this sermon series is give you tools and help you understand so that as we continue reading, you aren't scared, you aren't fearful, you remember the hope the life, the love, the promises of God to you, and how we participate in this story. So in order to do that, we're going to talk about the original context that Revelation was actually written in. It shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that we're talking about the original context. This matters with everything you read in Scripture because certainly this is written for us, but it wasn't originally written to us. It was written to a specific audience in a a specific place and time, and so the original context really matters. And I'm going to stick with this point just for a little bit, because we live in such a day and age where you can Google interpretations of Revelation, and you're going to get some interesting stuff, to put it mildly, okay? Don't do it. In fact, I'm telling you, please don't go home and Google interpretations of Revelation. It will be weird, 
The original context of Revelation is that it is a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire, period. When Jesus gives John this revelation through the angel, when when it comes to John, they are critiquing in a big part of this book what's happening under the oppression of the Roman Empire. In fact, in the letters, uh, the first letters that we have read, Jesus acknowledges the struggle of some of these churches under the persecution of this Roman Empire. Certainly John, who is recording the vision, knows the struggles of living under the Roman Empire. Uh, I told you this is apocalyptic literature. That's kind of a big umbrella. With, contained within Revelation, apocalyptic literature, is some prophecy, okay? That's a piece of apocalyptic literature. It is a prophetic critique of Rome. It's a prophetic critique of Rome. The nature of prophecy, okay? We've read a whole bunch of Old Testament prophets. The nature of prophecy is to prophesy about the immediate future. I think scholars say that 98 or 99% of the prophecy in the Old Testament is about the immediate future. The prophecies that don't fit that category are the prophecies about Jesus Christ. Everything else is a prophecy about the immediate future, like the destruction of a temple, like uh, exile to Babylon, or persecution under some ruler. Our prophets are prophesying about an immediate future because that is the nature of prophecy. So when we read prophecy in Revelation, it is a prophecy about the immediate future in the context of Rome. It's a prophecy about rulers like Nero or Domitian or the persecution that they know, the evilness, the beast kind of, that is Rome, that is this very oppressive empire for Christ followers. So if you Google, and again, don't do it, interpretations of Revelation, what you will find in today's world is a whole bunch of wackadoodles trying to tell you that Revelation is about today's political climate or our political rulers, or it's about wars currently happening today. That's to completely dismiss the entire genre of prophecy. It's also to pull this directly out of context. So put simply, that's really bad theology. It's really bad theology, but this gets so twisted in today's world. And so I want you to hear clearly, this is not a prophecy about what's happening in today's world. It's just not. That's not the nature of apocalyptic literature or prophecy. When we do get to the prophetic pieces that are weird and have symbols, it's a critique of the Roman Empire. That's how it was written. John couldn't come right out and say, Nero is a terrible ruler. Steer clear. Do Keep following Jesus, people. He had already been exiled for that. So he did it in symbols and with symbolism in a type of literature that the original audience would have understood. Keep that in mind as we read, because this can easily get twisted in our world today. What scholars at scholars, what scholars absolutely agree on is that this is a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire. So I'm gonna leave that there. We're gonna keep keep on keeping on. As we read apocalyptic literature, super important that we understand some of the characteristics of this literature, because again, we're very far removed from apocalyptic as a genre. I don't walk into a bookstore or order a book on Amazon and click on, oh, the genre I'd like today is apocalyptic and have a plethora of selection. It really doesn't exist. 
So for us to understand it, there's some characteristics that will be really good tools for you to have as you continue reading and as we dive into this for the next four weeks or so leading up to Christmas. One of those characteristics is the dualistic nature of apocalyptic literature. By dualistic nature, one of the hallmark features of apocalyptic literature is that there's a dualistic uh, force, two forces playing out against one another. Good versus evil, light versus darkness, God versus Satan. You will see this over and over and over again in Revelation. It gets really dark and destructive at some points. It is this tension playing out. It's the nature of this literature to do this. It also means there are two timelines kind of playing out. There's a present age timeline. The present age is marked by chaos and destruction and a world that needs order. A present age is also chronological time. It's very ordered, like you and I understand time. There's a future age that also plays out amidst the present age. In the future age, we might call it kairos time. It's godly time. It doesn't fit a chronological timeline. And it plays out in such a way that the future time is going to redeem the present time. So there's, there are these two timelines also working against each other. What's really neat about these times is that the future age always invades the present in really cool ways. It's how we see hope today. We certainly live in a time and place that needs restoration, that needs redemption, that needs to be made right by God. But you and I also see hope in that. We know joy in the face of sadness or grief. We know God is showing up in our suffering, even though suffering's hard. This is, this is us experiencing dualistic nature in our own world today. But so as you read, pay attention to light versus dark, good versus evil. If it seems really dark, look for the light. It's always there. The second characteristic of apocalyptic literature that's really important for us to understand is symbolism. By nature, this kind of literature is symbolic. If you read a poem that is supposed to rhyme and it rhymes, that's not surprising because you're like, it's a poem, it's supposed, it's supposed to rhyme. If you were in John's day reading this and you picked up Revelation as apocalyptic literature, and it had a whole bunch of symbols, you wouldn't go, that's weird. You would say, it's apocalyptic literature. That makes sense. So for you and me, it is really weird because we're kind of far removed from this, and we don't really read things like this. But for the original audience, the numbers, the images, the weird stuff that's about to play out, very, very normal for this kind of literature, and that's okay. Here's what I want you to know about these symbols. Don't get so hung up on the weird symbols that you miss the hope, that you miss uh, the light that is coming, that you get so scared of a beast or a mark of the beast or some number that's supposed to mean something that you start looking for it in the world around you. That's not why this was written. Do you remember the point of apocalyptic literature is to give us hope for the future? It's not meant to scare us. A lot of the symbols that we'll encounter in Revelation have Old Testament ties. They're very deeply rooted in the Old Testament. So unless you're a Revelation scholar or, a New or an Old Testament scholar, we're probably going to miss some of those references, and that's really okay. Simply remember that the original audience would have picked up on that. They would have known their Old Testament pretty well. They would have understood some of those ties 
Revelation is actually beautifully written to bring the entire Bible into a culmination. And it's not a culmination that ends in destruction. It ends in restoration and hope. So those symbols, we're going to encounter them. Don't be scared by them and don't get hung up on them. We've actually encountered a couple already. Uh, at the end of Revelation 1, uh, Jesus is you know, giving this vision to John and he says, this is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, why we couldn't just say, angels instead of stars, why it had to be coded as stars, I'll never know. Why we couldn't just say churches instead of lampstands, again, is coded in a symbol. But John actually tells you what those symbols are. So keep reading. Often our author will tell you what the symbols are. And if they don't tell you what the symbols are, come back to church and we'll talk about them together so that none of us are freaked out by it or reach out and we can give you scholarly resources to help you understand as you keep reading. But long story short, your understanding of Revelation does not depend on your knowledge of Old Testament symbols or your knowledge of Revelation. It's okay to be kind of far removed from it. What matters is the hope and the light that are coming, that are going to defeat all the darkness, all the weird stuff that is symbolized here in Revelation. And we're actually more familiar with these kind of, this kind of tension, this kind of symbolism than we think. We're not familiar with apocalyptic literature, per se. We don't pick up books that are written that way anymore. But we actually see it play out all the time in modern-day stories. For example, Harry Potter is one of my most favorite books and movie series. I watch it every year. Harry Potter, from the beginning, portrays a battle of light versus darkness, good versus evil. And I'm not sure if you remember how Harry Potter ends. I was going to show a clip from Harry Potter but it is dark and it is scary and it's also family worship weekend and so I didn't want to scare anyone. So I'll just describe it to you. You can go home and watch it. But at the very end of the very last movie, Voldemort, the you know very satanic character, thinks he's won. Harry is presumably dead and Voldemort is like giving this speech about how darkness wins and Harry's people are like, darkness will never win. Neville Longbottom, of all people, gives a speech back to Voldemort about how Harry's heart was for everybody and light will defeat dark. And then, guess what? Harry isn't dead. And then they fight out this battle, right? Are you seeing the symbolism that Harry died but isn't really dead? That light's going to defeat dark? This plays out all the time in stories and movies that we watch. I don't think anybody would say that J.K. Rowling was writing a Christian series. But if you're reading it really closely... It's, it's pretty close. The symbolism's there. So I am going to show you a clip. It's of Wonder Woman. All of our superhero movies do this, by the way. Watch the symbolism play out as light defeats dark. Listen to what Diana says about what she believes and the power of what she believes. Watch as she is lifted into the sky, illuminated like a cross, brought back down to earth, and light literally comes up behind her. You can't miss this, people. Okay, take a look. It's not that foreign. I wish we had more time. What? What are you saying? I love you.
about them. Everything you say, but so much more. deserve. It's about what you believe. And I believe in love. Then I will destroy you! We're actually pretty familiar with this kind of tension. We watch it play out all the time in stories around us. How you and I understand the context of Wonder Woman is how the original audience would have understood the context of Revelation. And the last characteristic that I want us to talk about briefly is the eschatological nature of apocalyptic literature. That's a lot of really big words. Eschatological is a characteristic of apocalyptic literature. Everyone say eschatological. Eschatological, yes, very good. Eschatological means that it relates to the end. And the theology of eschatology is that although we're talking about the end, it means it has present implications. It means that because we know the end, we also know present promises. We know how it plays into how you and I live every single day. So when we read Revelation, it, because we know the end, because of the hope and the renewal and the restoration that's coming, because of the eschatological nature of it, we know that that matters for us today. And so I figured a good place for us to end is with the promises of God. Uh, before that, one quick story. I was driving around with my sister uh, this on Friday. They were here for Thanksgiving. She lives in Madison with her husband. And so they were back in town. And uh, we cut down our Christmas tree on Friday. And I have this problem where I always get a Christmas tree that's far too big for our house. My husband assured me that it would fit. Like, we were looking at it, and I'm like, 
P.S. We can fit a 12-foot tree in our, in our house because we have vaulted ceilings. So I know that like right in the nook of the vault, I can fit a 12-foot tree. I've done that. So this tree, I was like, it's not that tall. He's like, it's a good nine feet. And I was like, all right, all right. Nine-foot tree will fit in our house. Easy. What I didn't look at was like the circumference, like the footprint of this Christmas tree. It looked normal on the Christmas tree farm next to all the other big trees. We got this in our living room and I was like, guess we're moving the furniture out and I guess we're not watching TV for the next six weeks. This tree is massive. We've, I mean, we seriously said we might need to put this outside and go get a fake tree. It's a whole thing. Anyway, I love Christmas. It's not a problem. Because so I looked at my sister who's helping me put this tree up and I was like, I'm going to need more Christmas tree lights. So we went to Home Depot. I bought 900 lights for our Christmas tree in addition to the ones I already owned, okay? This is a massive tree. It's beautifully lit, if I do say so myself. So we're driving home. They came to church last night, and she's like, what are you preaching on? And I said, Revelation. And she was like, I have a physiological response to Revelation and talking about the end times. I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, I literally get a pit in my stomach when you say end times. And my arms get heavy with anxiety. She's like, I literally hate talking about the end. And I was like, that's weird because you're a believer. Like, you know Jesus. Why does this scare you? And she's like, Isn't, aren't the heavens going to crack open and the earth's going to split open and there's going to be a beast? And, blah, blah. and I was like, if you want to take Revelation literally, sure. Notice that a characteristic of apocalyptic literature is not taking it literally. And so we talked about some of those things. And ultimately, we ended with hope. I said, Rachel, the, the power of Revelation is to point us to hope. It's to reveal to us light and the promises of God. And because we know the end, it impacts our present. And so right at the beginning of Revelation, as Jesus is telling John to write these letters to seven churches, which seven, by the way, represents wholeness, completeness. These are our promises too. We're enveloped in this wholeness, this completeness. Every single letter that Jesus tells, writes to these churches, that John writes to them for Jesus, ends with a promise. Listen to some of those promises, just a couple of them. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations, the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star." All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. They go on, these promises of God. It's a really good way for us to think about revelation is in the context of who God is, is of who you are, and of his promises for each and every one of us. And with that, it's a good place to end for today. Come back for more on Revelation. Let's stand, let's sing about who this God is.